Today's Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 19 and can be found on pages 552 to 553 of the Church Bibles. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Today's New Testament reading comes from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and can be found on page 1235 of the Church Bibles. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, at many times, and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning we take a break from our series on the seven churches of Revelation and we look at a psalm, Psalm 19, a well-known psalm and a psalm that is a favorite of many. So before we look at that psalm, Psalm 19, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Join me, please. God, our Heavenly Father, remove from us this morning our, our distracting thoughts. Give us a sense, Lord, of what you would have us know what you would have us believe, what you would have us do. And we ask this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 
So let's start our discussion of Psalm 19 this morning by thinking about a building, a building in the center of Milan. Let's think about the Duomo di Milano or the Cathedral of Milan. Anyone been there, seen it? Anyone not been there or seen it? <laughs> I think pretty much everyone has been there and seen it. Well, I've had the good fortune of being there a few times myself, and from my experience, the first thing I would say one notices about the cathedral as you um, approach it there in the piazza, the Piazza del Duomo, is just how big it is, how really big it is, how massive that building is. The building itself covers 11,000 square meters. It's just the building. It's the fifth largest church, or Christian church, in the world. And it's an amazing sight to behold as you walk up to the church there in the piazza. But as you get closer and closer to the cathedral, it's still the mass and the size that impress. But as you change vantage points, as you get a little bit closer, it's also the detail, also the delicacy that you come to appreciate in that structure. As you approach the entrance to the church, you see detail and delicacy presented in the bronze doors of the cathedral, uh, in, the, in the marble reliefs, in the stone gargoyles. Uh, and once you're inside, there's a lot more of the same, right? Sculptures, paintings, stained glass, all present to the visitor a much finer image of than what was first encountered. As you view the cathedral from one vantage point to the next to the next, you learn that it's not just a behemoth, it's a beauty. It's not just enormous, it's exquisite. No wonder then the American author Mark Twain remarked about the cathedral this, as uh, he viewed it in 1867. This is what Mark Twain said about the Milan Cathedral. He said, what a wonder it is. So grand, so solemn, so vast, and yet so delicate, so airy, so graceful. A very world of solid weight, and yet it seems a delusion of frostwork that might vanish with a breath. So clearly, the different vantage points that Mark Twain enjoyed at the cathedral, it caused him to express this effusive praise of it, which makes him a little bit like the writer of Psalm 19, the writer David, as he too expresses effusive praise, effusive praise resulting from enjoying something or as you'll see, someone from many vantage points. David's praise, unlike Mark Twain's, is not for a cathedral, but it's for God. In Psalm 19, David praises God from two different vantage points, two different vantage points, and these different vantage points that he is looking at God from it causes him to encounter different attributes of God, see different sides of God, different facets of God different qualities he possesses, different characteristics he exemplifies. So let's look at Psalm 19 this morning. Let's look at from these vantage points that the psalmist David looks from, and let's find out why it fills David's heart with praise and why it should fill our hearts with praise too. So let's take a look. So I might suggest that the first vantage point, I said there were going to be two, 
The first vantage point from which David praises God in Psalm 19 is the vantage point of someone who is looking up into the sky. Maybe David is lying on his back on the ground. Perhaps he's out camping or doing something in the countryside and he's doing as many of us perhaps have done. Just look up, right? Or maybe he's walking around on the, on the roof of his palace there in Jerusalem. But as he looks up, he very poetically, very emphatically says this. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So for David, the splendor, the magnificence of what he sees above him there in the sky, this speaks to him of the greatness and glory of his creator God. The sun, the moon, and the stars, they all testify to a God who is an awesome God, one who is the creator of heavens and earth, one who is the creator of a universe, someone who has infinite power, someone who has absolute authority. So we might say for David, the skies and all that in them positively shout out at the top of their lungs, metaphorically speaking. What a great and glorious God he has. And perhaps many of us too, as we looked up into the sky, we've heard this exact same voice. When we've looked, when we've gotten out of Zurich and gone to the countryside, maybe in the mountains or somewhere else in the world, we've seen the grandeur, the majesty, the magnificence, magnificence of God's creation. And we too in our hearts have said, what a great and glorious God we have. The heavenly bodies above us, they announce to us the limitless of our God's creativity, the boundlessness of his ingenuity. And yet, the skies possess no mouth, no tongue, right? They can't speak. But as David goes on to, to say, they do actually. They tell us a lot. Verse 2, day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet, their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. It's beautiful, beautifully poetic language David uses here to express the witness, the witness of the universe to the greatness and glory of our God. He closes his commentary from the vantage point of someone looking up into the sky with another poetic description of God's mastery over creation. This is what he says. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. So this reference, this poetic reference to, to God pitching a tent in the heavens, it's thought to be a, a way of explaining in very commonplace uh, words where the sun goes at night. Just like the Israelites would go into their tent for the night and not appear till the morning, so does the sun. So does the sun. It emerges, it emerges in the morning out of its quarters, just like those Israelites would have emerged out of their quarters in the morning. And David here compares it to a bridegroom after a wedding or a runner before a race. In other words, there's purpose there. There's a plan. There's intentionality. It doesn't just happen. There's something, someone behind all this. Okay, 
So from his vantage point of someone looking up into the sky, David views God as a great and glorious God. A God whose awesome creation speaks to his awesome attributes. But, as we find out now, this isn't the only vantage point. This isn't the only vantage point from which David praises his God in Psalm 19. David goes on in the next verses now to praise his God from a very different vantage point. I wonder if any of you felt almost whiplash as Johanna read Psalm 19, right? It's like, oh, it's like a turn happens in the psalm. A different vantage point is spoken from. And from this vantage point, it's not God's greatness and glory which is so much praised, but his goodness and grace. It's goodness and grace. So what vantage point then is David speaking from or viewing from when he talks about God's goodness and grace? Well, you might say that instead of looking up into the heavens, what he's now doing is looking down into a book. A book. Not just any book. The Torah. The book of God's law given to the Jewish people through Moses. In the Torah, David reads about the Lord's expectations for his people. His people whom he's chosen as his own uh, to belong to him. David reads about his expectations for how they should interact with him, their God. How they should interact with each other. David reads about these expectations for living a holy life, for conducting a, a just society, for establishing good relationships, for keeping themselves safe, for keeping others safe. Other things as well are in this Torah, this book of God's law. And from these words in this book, from these words in the Torah, David is struck by the goodness and the grace of his God. These expectations that God has laid out for his people, I would say counterintuitively perhaps for us, they strike him not as oppressive, not as awful, not as binding, not as constraining as sometimes we might feel like when certain laws or expectations are imposed on us. No, David finds them helpful, useful, beneficial, valuable. They strike him as compassionate, considerate, benevolent. Now, I'm not going to reread everything David says about the Torah. We can read that again after, if you like. But here's just a sample of how from David's vantage point, looking down at the Torah, he sees the goodness and grace of his Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect. I'm at verse 7. Refreshing the soul. It's refreshing the law. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. They give wisdom. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. So through God's law, told, as told by David, the Lord revives souls makes the simple wise, gives joy to the heart, gives light to the eyes. So the long and short of it for David is this. God's law, I'm going now to verse 11. God's law, what it means to him is by them, by 
his law, as your servant warned, in keeping with them, there is great reward. Great reward. So from David's perspective here, God's laws might be tough, but they're good for him. And they're good for all people. They help his people live together as they're supposed to live together. They're there so that his people can flourish together as they were created to flourish together. They're good for his people, good for everyone. They make for a communal life of peace, a communal life of wholeness, a communal life of shalom. When people follow these laws, when they do what he commands, things go better. Not perfectly, of course. There's still stuff in the world. There's still trouble, tragedy. But David sees the grace of the law. He sees the goodness of the law here. He sees the law given by someone who loves him and all his people, given by someone who cares for him and all his people. So this new vantage point of looking down at the Torah has yielded for David yet one more perspective, a different perspective from that of looking up into the sky. It's not unrelated, but it is additional. He's been reminded that in addition to his God, being a great and glorious God, his God is also a good and gracious God. He's not only an awesome creator, but he's a benevolent carer. He cares for his people by the way, or through the way he has commanded them to live. Maybe a new perspective for some of us this morning. Huh, I never thought of it that way. God's commands, God's expectations, God's way of living, gracious, good for us. An aspect of his love, not an aspect of his justice. A fruit of his care for us, not something oppressive. Well, this consideration of who God is and what he's all about has an impact on David. It's got an impact on him. Encountering God as revealed in the skies above, encountering God as is revealed in the Torah, um, this has an effect. What David realizes now, or what David sees now, is his own inadequacies in relation to his great and glorious God and in relation to his good and gracious God. And so at the end of the psalm, again, this might have given us a little whiplash because boom, all of a sudden David seems to go in another direction here. But they're related. When David considers who God is and what he's all about, he prays a prayer of confession. Who God is has made him want to confess and also petition God for help. This is what he says. I'm looking at now verse 12. But who can discern their own ears? And then he asks God to, he says, forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgressions. So David's words, I think, are instructive here, instructive for us. We humans, since we're, let's face it, often so busy comparing ourselves to others, I think we're so seldom then, because we compare ourselves to others, other humans, we're so seldom then to pray these types of prayers of confession, prayers of petition. Because after all, if the, if the main source of comparison for us, as far as how good we are, how we're doing, or how valuable we are, 
The main source of comparison is other people. Other people maybe we even look down at. Well, who's going to be moved to confession then? If we think always about the people out there in society, beyond these four walls, maybe even within these four walls, who's then going to be brought to their knees? If that's all we think about, that's all we hear about, that's all we're faced with is those people out there doing those awful things. If they and they alone serve as our source of comparison, we're probably going to feel really good about ourselves. Really good about ourselves indeed, because after all, we're not them. There's a different way of approaching these things, though. It's not to look around us to see how good we are. It's to look upwards to see how good we are. And there and then we fall on our knees, right? Because we see who God is. We see what he's all about. And in comparison, we know we don't measure up. And so then we pray, forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Something I think instructive for us all to consider as we look at our lives and as we look around us and hopefully we look above us. Okay, so we've pretty much finished the psalm. I'd like to go back where we started now. I'd like to go back where we started now. I'd like to go back to the Milan Cathedral. As we we discuss, there are a lot of great vantage points from which to, to view the cathedral. Uh, a lot of great vantage points where we can appreciate the beauty and grandeur of this awesome building. Uh, From a distance, you can view it. From up close, you can view it. From inside, you can view it. From outside, you can view it. Uh, Many great vantage points. But there's one vantage point, there's one vantage point I didn't mention. And I think this vantage point especially, especially gives you a sense of what this building is all about. And that vantage point is the roof. Anyone been on the roof? Well, not as many, but a few of you, right? So I don't know about if you know this, but you can actually go up to the roof of the Milan Cathedral, and from there you can see not only some of the most exquisitely made statues and columns, but you can, you can get an even greater sense of the cathedral's size and place, uh, its relative size to the other buildings and its place there in the city, and in the region even. So being on the roof, I think, really gives you an unparalleled unparalleled perspective on the overwhelming magnificence of this building, perhaps more so than any other vantage point. So I'm not saying that if if you haven't been on the roof, you haven't seen the cathedral. I'm not saying that. But I guess what I am saying is this. If you haven't been on the roof of the cathedral there in Milan, you have missed out. You've missed something. You've in some way missed out because the roof gives you a vantage point from which you can see even more of the cathedral's beauty, even more of the cathedral's grandeur, even more of its presence, which I might suggest this morning is a little bit the of what David finds himself in, the situation David finds himself in, as he writes this psalm before the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Let me explain. And this has to do with our Hebrews reading today. You see, as David writes this psalm of praise to God, this psalm of praise from a 
position of someone looking up in the sky and looking, some, and looking down at the Torah. He's in a way missing out, isn't he? He's in a way missing out. He's missing out on an even better vantage point from which to encounter God and his greatness and glory and his goodness and grace. And this vantage point is the vantage point of knowing Jesus Christ. When you know Jesus Christ, when you know his power, when you know his love, when you know his wisdom, when you know his compassion, when you know his authority, when you know his humility, when you know his birth in a stable and his death on a cross, when you know his resurrection from the grave and you know his ascension into heaven, you know God in a way that David never could. In a way that even more so than the sky or the Torah reveals God's qualities, his character, his attributes, his essence. And so what I'm talking about here is very much what the author of Hebrews is talking about. And that's why I've paired these together because they're, they're really both passages about God revealing himself. So what the author of Hebrews is talking about as he opens up this epistle, his epistle, He's speaking of Jesus Christ as the crowning revelation of God. And he says this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory. Remember, we were talking about God's glory today. And the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So yes, looking up, looking down, David had great vantage points from which to view God. But given what we just read in Hebrews again, it could be argued that our vantage point is even better. We're like the people who have climbed the roof of the Milan Cathedral. We can see better. We can appreciate more. We can see God better and appreciate him more because of how he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. So let me close with this. Given what we read in Psalm 19, we too obviously should praise our God. Praise our God who's revealed himself in the brilliant universe he's created and in the benevolent laws he has commanded. That our God could be so great and so glorious on the one hand, but also so good and so gracious on the other hand. This is truly reason, high reason for praise from us, his people. But, as people who have been to the rooftop, so to speak, we have, we have even more reason for praise this morning. We have even more reason for praise since we have seen God's greatness and glory. We have seen his goodness and his grace as best revealed. We learned that in Hebrews 1. As best revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. So what remains then for us this week as we go out from this place is, of course, to live lives of praise, right? to live a life of praise to God for who he is and what he's done, especially as revealed and related through Jesus Christ. But this life of praise, this will, this will surely, surely not just be praise that's coming from our lips, 
It's going to be a lot more than saying praise God. No, this is not going to just come from our lips, this praise. It's going to come from our lives, from our hands, from our feet, from our whole bodies. This life of praise will reflect the life of Jesus Christ, who offered praise to the Father through the love he gave and the sacrifice he made for others. That was his life of praise to God his Father. The love he gave and the sacrifice he made for others. And we should do the same. The highest praise, the highest praise we can give our God is to live the life his son Jesus Christ has showed us to live. Such a life is, to be sure, a life of righteousness and holiness, but it's also a life of humility and generosity, a life of service and submission, a life of kindness and compassion. It's a life lived for the glory of God and for the benefit of others. David ends Psalm 19 with a prayer, and let me now end this sermon with that very same prayer. It's a prayer of commitment, a prayer in which we commit what we have said and what we have thought to our God. Please join me in prayer. God, our Father, this morning, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen.